1770, Captain James Cook, an English sailor, came sailing past this spot. He'd already landed at Botany Bay, 15 miles to the south. He did not come into this area here, which today is called Sydney Harbour, but he did name the place Port Jackson. It wasn't until 1788 that the first fleet came here. They came here with a load of convicts from old England, people whom they wanted to get out of their sight, people who were a problem and an embarrassment. Conditions in England in those days were about as bad as you can imagine. Little children worked down in the mines when they were, they started working there when they were five or six years of age. They worked in the factories from the time they were almost babies. And many of them turned to crime. They did terrible things like stealing a loaf of bread or taking a piece of cheese. And because of these terrible crimes, they were sent out here in 1788. Australia was born in the womb of suffering and uh, brutality. I could tell you amazing stories about the penal colonies and the floggings, people being flogged 250 times and more. But from this awful beginning came the Australian nation. Today, Australia is a land of peace and prosperity and freedom. And this didn't just happen by chance. It happened because people here came to believe in the Bible and to believe in God. I'm John Carter in Sydney, and welcome today to the Carter Report. We're just so glad that you've joined us today. And uh, whether you're watching in Africa, or in Russia, or in Ukraine, or even in Saudi Arabia, or Iraq, or Iran, or Syria, we want you to know today that God has a very special message for you. Today, I'm going to talk about the hidden gospel. But before I do so, my wife Beverly is going to come and talk to you about the unchanging God. Would you please welcome her today? I'd like to read you something from the Atlantic Journal. The world is too big for us. So much going on, too many crimes, too much violence and excitement. Try as you will, you get behind in the race. It's an incessant strain to keep pace. Science and technology empty their discoveries on us so fast that we stagger beneath them in hopeless bewilderment. Everything is high pressure and human nature can't endure much more. When do you think that was written? That editorial was written June 16, 1833. What would the editor say about today? Take technology. Things are changing all the time. Last week, our home telephone broke down or just simply wore out. And so my husband went shopping down to his favourite store, Costco, and brought home a new telephone. Have you noticed how they wrap things today? They put simple objects into these hard plastic casings. So hard, you need a chainsaw to break it open. On the front of the phone, it says Digital SP. And I asked my husband, what does that mean? And he said, well, that will help you to hear the people speaking to you more clearly. And I said, well, you know, the old way was clear enough to me. Well, he said, that's the way things are these days. Also, I haven't worked out how to put the recorded message on it because I simply haven't had the time to read the 50-page book that came with it. 
I thought, incorrectly it seems, that technology was supposed to make our lives simpler and easier. So much for that theory. Young people, even though our fast-changing world can sometimes make our heads spin, there is something that never changes, and that is the love of God. The devil doesn't want us to know that our Heavenly Father never changes. As it says in that beautiful text, Hebrews 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This tells us he is, was, and will be always the same. One, always the same in his great love for his people. Two, he has never changed in his great purpose to save his children. Three, he has never changed his doctrines or teachings. And four, he is the unchanging shepherd. There is a story of some children who received as a gift ten little lambs who had all lost their mothers. The children fed them, played with them, and watched them grow. One day, while they were at school, the sheep strayed off the ranch. Another rancher found them, and thinking they were some of his flock, he added them back to his flock. But when he discovered his mistake, he was very sorry, and immediately he wanted to give them back. But how could they tell which was which? Billy, one of the children, had an idea. Taking a bucket of oats, he went out to the flock and gave his usual feed call, calling them name by name. And straight away, the ten sheep came out and walked up to him because they knew his voice. When Jesus becomes our shepherd, we get to know his voice. And those of us who have been following him for many years know that we can trust him to take us safely home. As the text in Hebrew says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Hidden Gospel. The Bible teaches that the gospel is hidden to the vast majority of people in the world, even good folks who go to church. As every scholar knows, as everybody knows, this book here is a Jewish book. Old Testament, completely Jewish. But most folks, I think, don't realize that the New Testament is also a Jewish book. And of course, the Messiah was a Jew. And today, we're going to turn in the Jewish New Testament to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. And my dear friend, Dr. Bert Rudger, who is blessed by the fact that he is Jewish, is going to come and read to us from the Jewish New Testament. Doctor, if you'd please come. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 1 to 6. And Welcome today again to our church. God has shown us such mercy that we do not lose courage as we do the work he has given us. Indeed, we refuse to make use of shameful, underhanded methods, employing deception or distorting God's message. On the contrary, by making very clear what the truth is, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So if indeed our good news is veiled, it is veiled only to those in the process of being lost. They do not come to trust because the God of the Halem Hazeh has blinded their minds in order to prevent them from seeing the light shining from the good news about the glory of the Messiah, who is the image of God. For what we are proclaiming is not ourselves, but the Messiah Yeshua as Lord, with ourselves as slaves for you because of Yeshua. For it is the God who once said, let light shine out of darkness, who has made his light shine in our <clears throat> hearts, the light of the knowledge of God's glory shining in the face of the Messiah, Yeshua. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Roger. Thank you. Now we're going to turn to Acts chapter 4. 
And in a moment, my dear friend Blake Wexler, who is a who also is blessed by being a Jew and a Christian Jew now is going to come and read to us from the Jewish New Testament. And my dear friend Blake is going to read Acts chapter 4 and verses 8 to 12. Each of you will follow in your translation. And dear Blake is going to read from the Jewish New Testament, Acts 4 verses 8 to 12. Then Kepha, filled with the Rosh Chodosh, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being examined today about a good deed done for a disabled person, if you want to know how he was restored to health, then let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that it is in the name of Messiah Yeshua from Nazareth, whom you had executed on a stake as a criminal, but whom God has raised from the dead, that this man stands before you perfectly healed. This Yeshua is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by whom we must be saved. Amen. Glory be to God. Thank you. So the text tells us that there's no other name under heaven whereby a person can be saved, but the name, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah, who is Messiah for the whole world. And we're also told by the Jewish rabbi or scholar, the greatest theologian and the greatest preacher since our Lord, the Apostle St. Paul, that this gospel is hidden to people. I want you to know today that this gospel can only be understood as it is revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. I want you to turn in your Bibles to the words of Galatians chapter 1 and verse 11 and 12, my beloved friends. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 11 and 12. Galatians 1, 11 and 12. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So Paul, the Jewish scholar, says he did not receive this from man, but he received it by special revelation from God. Now some of you who are watching today, wherever you might be in North America or around the world, will wonder why I have two of my Jewish brothers read to you from the Jewish New Testament. It is as plain as day. Jesus said, salvation is from the Jews. This is a Jewish book. And for the past 2,000 years in the Christian church, there has been a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism. Did you know that Christians have persecuted the Jews hundreds and hundreds of years? And that anti-Semitism still exists in most parts of the world today. For instance, let me give you an illustration. If you talk to most folks in North America and you say, I keep the Sabbath, they'll say, it's Jewish. Of course, the Sabbath goes back thousands of years before the Jews. But even if it were Jewish Is that a good enough reason to reject it? Is that a reason at all? When we recognize that the Lord that we adore and through whom we are saved is a Jew. The gospel that we receive today is a gift to us by God through the Jews. And the Bible tells us that this gospel is received 
by special revelation from God. This explains the truth that there are folks who go to church for many, many, many years and they talk about it and they debate about it and they have all of the theology right, but the gospel has not been revealed to them. It is a supernatural act from God. I've had people come to me and I say this, glory be to God. They've come to me and they've said, look, I have been a church member for 40 years. I've just now come to realize that for 40 years I was in darkness because today I have received the blessed gospel by revelation. I was the pastor of the headquarters church in Sydney, Australia. Some of my beloved American friends came with me recently and saw the cathedral that I used to look after. It is called the Warunga Church. And in the church when I was there, we had a distinguished congregation, including at least 500 young people. And when I was there, a terrible heresy swept through the church, particularly the young people. It was insidious. It was satanic. It was another gospel. They said, unless we can attain to being exactly like the Lord Jesus Christ, we will not be saved and neither will you be. Of course, this is not the gospel of the Bible. This is called perfectionism and it is a complete heresy. And we set out to preach so many sermons on the gospel But for many of those young people, it was like preaching to a brick wall. And after church, they would meet together in a large home and there they would take the sermon apart and show that they were preaching the true gospel, but the gospel I was preaching was not the gospel that we needed for these last days. I saw young people become suicidal I saw one young person take his own life because of this heresy. But I find, found it was almost impossible to talk to them because they knew everything and they were so utterly proud of their humility. We took a large group of young people trying to salvage the situation to Manila. Beverly said, perhaps if we get them out of this affluent area where there is so much pride and arrogance and throw them into a great evangelistic campaign and let them get the mud out of their eyes. So we took 70 or 80 of them to Manila. And while we were there, I had the privilege of going into death row in the Manila prison and baptizing eight young men who were facing death. Pastor Graham Bradford also helped me to baptize these young people. We baptized, in fact, 230 hardened criminals, including eight young men who were going to be put to death for terrorism. And when I came back to my church, I told the story of how these young people were in this dirty water, in this dirty jail. And Pastor Bradford and I went in and took off our shoes and we got into this slimy water and baptized these young people who were filled with remorse for their sins. As they they came up out of the water, they they just wouldn't let me go. They, They were hanging on to me and I said, why are you here for murder, sir? And what has happened to you? I found Jesus. And today my sins are washed away. I'm repenting of my sins. I'm sorry. No boasting. No arguing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my sins. And I came back to my church and I told them the story. Not thinking that this would make any difference to the members of the party of the Pharisees. But after the church service, a young man by the name of Kelvin, I can still see him with his beautiful young wife. Kelvin was a fine young man, 
deceived by this false gospel. And he came to me and he said, all the arguments you gave me on the nature of Christ and all the, the words you used to, to prove your point did not touch me. But he said, as you were preaching today, I saw it, that I am a sinner and I am lost. He said, today I have seen the gospel by revelation. His life was turned around as a revelation from God. I want you to know this, my friend. The gospel is a revealed truth. Every person who comes into the world comes into the world with a knowledge of the law of God. Every baby, but no baby comes into the world with any knowledge at all of the gospel. We have law by nature, but gospel is purely by revealed grace. Here is the second truth. The gospel that we're talking about today is not about our good deeds. We're going to turn now to Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 10. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 10. And Dr. Bert Roger is going to come and read to you from the Jewish New Testament. And you should all be turning in your Bibles. Philippians chapter 3. And Dr. Bert is going to read to you verses 4 to 6. Now please turn to Philippians 3. Dr. Bert Roger is going to read, and we thank him for doing so, from the Jewish translation, verses 4 to 6. We do not put confidence in human qualifications, even though I certainly have grounds for putting confidence in such things. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for putting confidence in human qualifications, I have better grounds. The Berit Milah on the eighth day, which is the circumcision, an Israelite by birth, from the tribe of Binyamin, that's Benjamin, a Hebrew speaker with Hebrew-speaking parents, in regard to the Torah, a Perush, or Pharisee, in regard to zeal, a persecutor of the Messianic community, in regard to the righteousness demanded by legalism, blameless. Thank you, Bert. Thank you. Now we're going to read verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. And my dear friend, Mr. Blake Wexler, is going to come and continue to read where Dr. Burt left off from the Jewish translation of the New Testament. But the things that used to be advantages for me, I have, because of the Messiah, come to consider a disadvantage. Not only that, but I consider everything a disadvantage in comparison with the supreme value of knowing the Messiah Yeshua as my Lord. It is because of him that I gave up everything and regarded all as garbage in order to gain the Messiah and be found in union with him, not having any righteousness of my own based on legalism, but having that righteousness which comes through the Messiah's faithfulness, the righteousness from God based on trust. Yes, I gave it all up in order to know him, that is, to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings as I am being conformed to his death. Amen. Amen. The great Pharisee says, I had it all. I kept the law, kept the Torah, but he said, I gave it all up. My attitudes towards all of this, I gave it up, he said, as garbage, that I might gain the Messiah. There was a world conference a number of years ago, and when C.S. Lewis walked in, There were a group of scholars who were loudly debating the unique qualities of Christianity. One said, well, incarnation, no, but other religions have incarnation too. When C.S. Lewis, the great British Oxford scholar, came in, he said, what are you talking about? We're, We're discussing what has Christianity got over the rest of the world religions? Where is it different? Oh, he said, that's easy to answer. It's grace. It's grace. Listen, the Buddhists have the eightfold path. Do, 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 do. You'll be perfect. 
The Hindus have the doctrine of karma. Our beloved brethren in the Jewish Orthodox community have the Jewish covenant. This do and thou shalt live. If you obey the commandments in the Torah, this will be your righteousness. The Muslims have the Muslim code of the law. The Muslim religion is based pure and simply upon salvation by your works. An ally in the judgment will weigh your good deeds against your bad deeds. And if you have more good deeds, even if by one, than bad deeds, you go to paradise. Otherwise, you go to hell. But the Bible teaches that the gospel of the Old Testament and the New Testament is not about our good deeds. You know the story, don't you? That Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, told about the workmen who all received a penny. This would never happen in America or in Australia or any other part of the world, I think. People started at six in the morning, worked all day. People started at seven. Some started at eight. Some started at noon. Some started at six o'clock in the evening, bless their hearts. And when they were paid, they all received exactly the same. And some of those who had started work at six were grumbling that people who'd started late were paid the same because they missed the point that what God gave them was not on the basis of their performance, but on the basis of his grace. Salvation is not by attainment. It is by atonement. I have met some wonderful Pentecostal people wonderful Christians, and they've said to me, are you saved? I say, by the grace of God. They say, when did it happen? I say, 2,000 years ago, (laughs) when Jesus died. I say, now, are you saved? Yes, we are certain. How do you know that you're saved? Because I speak in tongues. That, of course, is legalism. I'm saved because I do something. I'm saved because I speak in tongues. That is not the teaching of the Bible. That is the most insidious form of legalism. I am saved because Jesus died for me. Not because of what I am successful in doing. As the English hymn writer rightly said, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. This doctrine, of course, is contrary to our human nature. You say it doesn't seem fair. That is because we misjudge. Now, the third point is this. The gospel, while it is not about our good deeds, is about God's good deeds. I want to tell you three stories that I shall allude to. The first story is the story of the supper that took place on the Thursday night before our Lord went to the cross. Within a few hours, the scum and the riff-raff of Jerusalem, led by the Pharisees, would be beating him up. Within a few hours, he would be nailed to a cross. And on that Thursday night, our blessed Lord took bread and wine said, this is my body, broken for you. This cup is the blood of the New Testament, the new covenant, which is shed for the many for the remission of sins. All of you drink of it. So our Lord was telling the disciples on that occasion that we're not saved because we're good enough. We're saved because his body was broken for us and his blood was spilt for us. Therefore, it's not by attainment, but by atonement. And you hear people say, but you must make atonement. You have been a bad person. Therefore, you must make atonement. We can never make atonement. We can make restitution, but we cannot make 
atonement. God makes atonement. The second story is the story of the ungrateful boy. Now today I'm going to read it to you, not from a translation, but I'm going to read it to you from a paraphrase. A paraphrase should never be used seriously for detailed Bible study. But this is an excellent paraphrase and it certainly captures the spirit of the parable. It is found in Luke chapter 15. I'm reading to you from the message. This is a paraphrase, but it is pretty good. Luke chapter 15, the story of the lost son. Listen to this, so I read it to you. There was once a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, I want right now what is coming to me. So the father divided the property between them. It wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything he had. After he'd gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all through that country, and he began to hurt. He signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to his field to slop the pigs. He was so hungry he would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slop, but no one would give him any. That brought him to his senses. He said, all those farmhands working for my father sit down to three meals a day. And here I am starving to death. I'm going back to my father. I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. He got right up and went home to his father. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His heart pounding, he ran out, embraced him, and kissed him. The son started his speech. Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling to the servants, quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then get a grain-fed heifer and roast it. We're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here, given up for dead and now alive, given up for lost and now found. And they began to have a wonderful time. All this time, his older son was out in the field. When the day's work was done, he came in. As he approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. Calling over one of the house boys, he asked what was going on. He told him, your brother came home. Your father has ordered a feast, barbecued beef, because he has him home safe and sound. The older brother stalked off in an angry sulk and refused to join in. His father came out and tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen. The son said, Look how many years I've stayed here serving you, never giving you a moment of grief. But have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? Then this son of yours who has thrown away your money on whores shows up and you go all out with a feast. His father said, son, you don't understand. You don't understand. You're with me all this time, all the time. And everything that is mine is yours. But this is a wonderful time and we had to celebrate. This brother of yours was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's found. It has been said, and you've heard this in one of my sermons, that this is really the story of the three prodigals. The first prodigal is the father. The word prodigal meaning extravagant and abundant. The old man is a prodigal with his love. Extravagant. The young waster, don't have any sympathy for him. He's a prodigal in his ingratitude and his sin. He's a miser. 
God finds it very hard to help mean, miserly people. The third prodigal is the older brother, the Pharisee, who was prodigal in his legalism and harshness. But God can save the prodigal who comes to himself. Is this story given to teach, as some would tell us, that God does not demand a blood atonement? No. A parable teaches only one truth. And the truth of this matter is this. That God, the Father, is so kind and so good and so gracious that when the sinner comes to his senses and comes home, the old man meets him with his heart pounding. That's the second story. The third story is the story of the boy who teased his brother. You know, all of you who listened to me over the years, you've heard me refer to the greatest of all the preachers that our church has ever put out. That's HMS Richard Sr. When he was a boy, he was a terror. Terrors make good preachers. <laughs> and his big problem was he was always teasing his little brother. How unusual. And his mother said, if you do it again, Harold, you're going to drive me crazy because you're driving your brother crazy. If you ever do it again, Harold, I won't beat you because I've tried that. You will beat me. Harold said, I would never beat you, mother. But the words were hardly out of his mouth before his carnal nature had taken over. And his brother was screaming. And his mother ordered him down the backyard time after time to find the biggest rod that grew beside the creek. And when he came back after many, many attempts to find the rod that suited his mother, he was met by his mother with her back bed. What a saint she was. She took him into the bedroom and bared her back and said, Harold beat me. I must be a terrible mother, she said. I failed you. He said, I can't beat you. She said, I am your mother and I tell you to do it and you must obey your mother. Young people, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Don't talk back. Beat me. Harold, beat me. Her lily white back. Beat me. He lifted the rod, did HMS Richards, and tried to bring it down upon his mother's back. When she saw him broken up and weeping and crying, she sat him down beside the bed and put her arm around him and told him how Christ was beaten by the guilty and for the guilty on behalf of the guilty. That's when HMS Richards had revealed to his mind the truth of the gospel. But there is a fountain filled with blood. The fourth truth is this. The gospel costs nothing. It's free here today. The gospel costs everything. It'll cost you everything here today. The Bible says in the Old Testament, come buy wine and bread without money and without price. That's the gospel. It's free. You can not do anything to earn it. A million years of going to church and outwardly keeping his commandments does not make you one whit more worthy of salvation. Without money and without price. It costs nothing, but it costs everything. Those who say it's free are superficial people. It costs the life of the Son of God. And Jesus told the parable of the treasure hid in the field. When the man knew he had a treasure in the field, he sold everything he had and bought the field. Then there was the pearl of great price. 
when the merchant heard about the pearl of great price, he sold everything he had and bought the pearl of great price. It costs you nothing, but it costs you everything. It costs you your life. And on another occasion, Jesus said something that most folks today could not stomach. He said, he who does not give up everything that he has cannot be my disciple. People say, oh, well, it doesn't, yes, it does. It means everything. If you do not give up everything that you have, you cannot be his disciple. Therefore, it costs nothing. It's free. It costs everything. The fifth great truth is this. The gospel is yours now. Remember Kelvin in the Wurunga church who had been an expert debater, a person who knew how to divide up a sermon and take it apart and take everybody else in the church apart too. But remember when Kelvin this young man in the Wurunga church heard the story of the penitent assassins. God revealed to him through that story the gospel. And this gospel is yours now. Please come to the words of the Messiah. John chapter 3, verse 16 to 21. John chapter 3. Verse 16 to 21. John chapter 3, 16 to 21. The words of the Messiah. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. The word one and only is a very interesting Greek word. It means the only one of its kind. Seldom used in the scriptures. Talks about Jesus as being the only one because he was the God-man. He gave his one and only son, his unique son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Before you go any further, let us talk for a moment about belief. This needs to be carefully understood. This is far more than an intellectual acceptance of a truth. Because we are told in scripture, even the devils believe and tremble. So what is this belief? This belief is a casting of the soul upon God. It is a belief that says, I am nothing. I am a sinner. I do not have Anything in me to commend me to God. I am unworthy to stand here before this congregation. Did you know that if a person has a burning desire to preach, it's usually an indication that he hasn't been called. Those whom God has called have universally shunned the responsibility and said, I don't want it. And God has said, I want you, I don't want it. Let me out. So here we have a belief that whoever believes will be saved. But if you misunderstand belief, then you have the devil being saved too. Because everybody says, I believe. 
And if you were to take a poll in most churches, doesn't matter who they are, and say, do you believe in Jesus? Yes, we all believe in Jesus. Do you love Jesus? Yes, we love Jesus. But that's not saving faith. Saving faith is a faith that casts itself feeling unworthy upon the merits of God. You know, some of the worst crimes in the history of the church have been committed by people who say they believe in the gospel. Did you know this? Some of the worst crimes have been committed by people who say they believe the gospel. Murder, rape, slander, lying. But I believe. So this belief here cannot be what many people think it is. As one of my Jewish Christian brothers told me today, as he read from the Jewish New Testament, the word is trust. I trust God because I can't trust you. I trust God because I can't trust me. I trust God because I can't trust the church organization. I trust God because everything earthly is going to pass away. I do not trust God for my salvation as far as my good deeds are concerned because when I come up in the judgment, all of my good deeds are blotted and marred by sin. You say somebody... He said, but that is not so. Our good deeds could never be marred by sin. It is interesting that there was a little lady in our church about a hundred years ago whom I personally believe was inspired by God to be his spokesman. And on one occasion she said, the sins of true believers, listen, the prayers, ah, the prayers of true believers ascend to the heavenly sanctuary. Oh, how nice that looks. The prayers of true believers ascend to the heavenly sanctuary, but passing through the corrupted channels of humanity, they are so defiled that unless they're purified by the blood of Jesus they're worth nothing at all so you go to a great conference and a great man of God says a great prayer but that prayer is so polluted that unless it's purified by the blood of Jesus it's not worth anything so I cannot trust in my own righteousness or my own goodness because that is non-existent. So here we have a belief. What is this belief? It is a belief that says, nothing in my hand I bring simply to your cross I cling. Read on. And if you are sitting here today, all of you watching on television, and you're saying, I don't understand what he's saying. I don't believe any of this. This is going, I, I, it's, it, I just don't, don't see, I, I, it's, it's, it's irrelevant, it's boring. May I suggest to you that perhaps you could be a lost soul. And this great gift has not been revealed to you yet. And if you were to leave the church today and go out and be killed, you would not be with Christ in paradise, but you would wake up in the flames, in the fire of judgment. You said, but this is a dreadful idea. Oh, my friend, it is the truth of the Bible. Did you say people don't get killed every uh, people don't get killed every day? Just think one moment I'm here in church. The next moment, as far as I'm concerned, I'm facing the judgment of God and hellfire. You said, but, wait, but the Bible doesn't talk about it. Yes, it does. It doesn't talk about eternal fire. Well, it does, but it means fire that has an end, but it talks about judgment. So this is not a light matter, is it? It is a matter 
of life and death. And remember, as the man of God said, as he stood on the scaffold, a man of God about to be put to death, he took out his watch and he passed it to the man who was about to chop off his head. He said, take my watch. I will have no need of it now. I'm dealing with eternity. So are you. Dealing with eternity. And if you come down here, verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. So, this gospel, which is hidden to the supercilious, this gospel that is hidden to the so-called sophisticates. This gospel that is hidden to the carnal man in the church who looks for power and political influence. You say there are no people like that in the church? This gospel that is hidden to the carnal heart is revealed to all those you come humbly to Christ. I was eating at the veggie restaurant that I recommend to everybody up on Huntington on the east, eastern side of the soup plantation. I was eating there Wednesday night. I found this wonderful vegetarian restaurant. I was eating there in splendid isolation, thinking only deep spiritual thoughts. When a man came up to me and he said, this lady has a story to tell you. Oh, I said, yes. Because <laughs> I was eating. I was, my mind was in the eating mode, not in the discussing mode. She said, I have a story to tell you, Pastor Carter. Oh, you know my name. She said, I brought an unbelieving lawyer to your church. Oh, I said, are there others? She said, I brought an unbelieving lawyer to your church. And before the sermon was over, this man who'd come into the church as an agnostic had become a true believer in the Lord Jesus. She said, he was born again and saved in the church service. He lives a hundred miles from here. Salvation is available now. Amen. 